you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. And we're on the final part of our Connecting to Church series, and I'm very excited to get into the message today. I want to begin with a quick story. So on on February 24th, 1989, United Airlines Flight 811 took off from Honolulu on the way to New Zealand. We've got a picture of the plane uh, here here to show you. There it is. And you can probably tell already that the plane did not just fly through the air uneventfully and then land in New Zealand. Otherwise, I would not be telling you about it right now. In fact, what happened was, as the plane took off, it got to 22,000 feet in the air, when all of a sudden, the right cargo door was ripped off of the plane, creating a gigantic hole in the right side of the cabin. Nine passengers were tragically immediately sucked out of the plane to their deaths. The two right engines were damaged by flying debris and were rendered non-functional, which you do not need a degree in aerospace engineering to know that that is bad. Very, very bad, right? And at this point, the plane was 100 miles from land, and the captain named David Cronin was faced with a situation he had not faced in 38 years of flying. It was going to be the most difficult challenge of his career. Because he wasn't getting any thrust from those now no longer working engines, he had to operate some instruments with his hands while operating others with his feet in an attempt to stabilize the plane. He then had to figure out how fast to fly. He knew he wanted to slow down so that he didn't, he he decreased the risk of the wind ripping the hole in the plane and making it bigger. But if he slowed down too much, the plane would stall. And again, no degree in aerospace engineering needed. That is bad, right? He didn't want that to happen. But because the aerodynamics of the plane were all messed up, he didn't know what speed would cause the plane to stall. He just had to do the best that he could. If that weren't enough, the plane was loaded down with 300,000 pounds of fuel for the long flight, meaning that between the fuel and the plane and the passengers and the luggage and everything else, the plane was 60,000 pounds too heavy to land with the landing gear. If they landed, they risked destroying the landing gear, which also very bad. And oh, by the way, the wing flaps used to slow down the plane properly, or the, the, were, the, the wing flaps used to slow down the plane were not working properly, and that meant he had to try to land the plane going 195 miles an hour, which we all know is 25 miles an hour too fast to land a plane that size. But despite all of that, Captain David Cronin made a nearly perfectly smooth landing amid, as you can imagine, raucous cheers from his passengers. Airline experts who examined the plane later called the landing a miracle, and we've got a picture here of what the plane looked like. A few days later, an interviewer asked Captain Cronin about his first thought following the loss of that cabin door, and he said this. He said, I said a prayer for my passengers momentarily, and then I got back to business. And in the end, the death toll on that day was nine, which is a terrible tragedy. But thanks to Captain Cronin's heroism, hundreds of lives were saved. Question for you, and you do not need to answer this out loud. What does it mean to be a Christian airline pilot? What does it mean to serve and glorify God 
as an airline pilot? What does it mean to glorify God as a Christian social worker or franchise tax board employee or public school teacher or police officer or fill in the blank with your own profession or whatever, it is, whatever you sort of do vocationally? I've wondered this about virtually every job I've ever had. What does it mean to glorify God in this particular job? I remember as a teenager who was relatively new to faith, wondering what difference does my faith make as I tucked in my teal polo shirt into my black jeans and walked into round table pizza to make pizza my first job. How do you glorify God making pizza? I thought about that as a soccer referee, which I did through most of my adolescence. I've thought about that question, how do I glorify God in my job, at at jobs I've enjoyed a great deal. I think about that all the time for my current job. How do you serve and glorify God as the director of discipleship at Bridgeway Christian Church? I've thought about that with jobs I enjoyed a little bit less or jobs that were boring. (laughs) What does it mean to be a a Christian in in this environment? What does it mean to serve and glorify God if you're the sucker who's stuck behind the reception desk of his college dorm from midnight to 6 a.m. I'm sad to report that for two semesters of my life, that was a very practical question for me. (laughs) What does it mean to serve and glorify God in these different places? See, this weekend, it's the second of a two-part mini-series talking about the connection between our faith and our jobs. Last week, Pastor Lance shared that if you're a faithful church attender, meaning you show up most weekends, That between the ages of 25 and 65, you'll spend approximately 2,500 hours sitting in church, depending on how long the sermons are. If you're a part of a missional community or you serve or you're part of a small group, that number might go up to 5,000 or even 7,500 hours over the course of those 40 years spent involved in church activities, attending church programs. But over that same span of 40 years, the average person will spend between 50,000 and 100,000 hours at work. That you will spend more time at work, most of us will spend more time at work than we will spend on any other single activity over the course of our working years. You will spend more time between the age of 25 and 65 working than you will sleeping, almost certainly. And I'm sorry if that is depressing to you. So what does that mean? It means that if you're a follower of Jesus, the primary place where you are going to live out your faith is not going to be at church. The primary place where you live out your faith is going to be in your workplace, the place where you spend the most time. So that means that God is intimately concerned about your work life. God cares very deeply about your work. So we're taking two weeks to talk about This connection between faith and work. And last week, Pastor Lance talked about what does it mean to honor God as a boss or a supervisor. If you serve in that sort of capacity, or really, frankly, if you're in leadership anywhere in your life, I would encourage you, if you missed last week, go listen to that message. He had so many helpful principles for leading and leading well. This week, I want to talk about what does it mean to honor God as an employee, or what does it mean just to honor God, even if you're the boss? What does it mean to honor God through the actual tasks that you're performing at your job. The passage that's serving as a jumping off point is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. So so if you haven't opened up there on your Bible or Bible-equipped mobile device, I'd like to invite you to do that. And in this passage, Paul is speaking to slaves and masters in their context. And Pastor Lance alluded to this last week, that slavery in the ancient world, while still problematic in a lot of different ways, was, was not anything really like 
what we think of as slavery in terms of what it was like in American history. So, so for that reason, and, and I'm happy to recommend resources to help understand this at a deeper level. We don't really have time to get into it this weekend. But so for that we, reason, when we read in the New Testament about relationships between slaves and masters, it's not a perfect analogy, but we can look at that as sort of employer-employee type relationships. So we can say when we hear about slaves and masters, we can think, okay, what does it mean to be an employer? What does it mean to be an employee who follows Jesus? So we're sort of looking at this passage through that lens. So, so this is what it says, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. We're going to spend most of our time on this question, how do we glorify God at work? Because I just, man, if, if we spend so much time <laughs> at work, and if we're not connecting what we do here on the weekends to our jobs midweek, I just think that we're, we're missing such a wonderful opportunity. And, and this message, just so, just so you're aware, this message, kind of similar to last week's message, it's not going to be uh, exegetical in the sense that we're tearing this passage apart sort of word by word, but rather we're going to use this passage, we're going to start here, and then we're going to use it to talk more generally about the issue of faith and work. So I want to talk about, like I said, this question, how do we glorify God at work? And then I just at the end want to talk about the practical implications of this idea that when we go to work as Christians, that the Bible tells us we're to work not just for a person, our, our earthly boss, but we're gonna, we're, we are to work as if we're working for the Lord, not simply for whoever's above us in the org chart. Now, work has been part of human existence since the beginning. <laughs> Maybe if you don't like your job, you'd like to think of work as part of the curse. But work existed from the beginning. God created a garden, and he appointed Adam and Eve to work in that garden. God has created a world, and I love this about the way that God created the, wor created the world, is so much of the beauty that God has created is unlocked by our work. When we cultivate this world in all the different ways that we do that, the beauty of God's creation is magnified. Work will be part of eternity as we are ruling and reigning with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And then as I've mentioned a few times already, work takes up a lot of our time on earth as well. And I would take it a step further. Not only has work been part of creation since the beginning, and not only will it be there at the end, but I would go, go a step further and say that work in some form is vital to our well-being. That you and I, that we need to work, to do some sort of work. A life of pure leisure sounds wonderful in theory, especially if you're feeling overworked. But a life of pure leisure will quickly become destructive and unfulfilling if that's all our life is. And, 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 I would say, and I would say this, that our work does not need to be paid employment. I'm going to talk about work and jobs, and I'm going to use that language. But your work can be caring for your children or managing your household. Your work can be volunteer work. If you don't need to work for money or if you're retired, these principles apply. But we are meant, there is something in us, we are hardwired to commit at least a portion of our time and our energy and our effort to the service of other people. Even, I mean, if you look at studies of happiness in retirement, 
You'll find that those who, who devote their retirement entirely to leisure don't seem to enjoy that for very long, right? That the most fulfilled retired people, I've seen studies about this, and this is certainly true of retired people that I know, that the most fulfilled retired people are ones who balance, on the one hand, taking advantage of the time that they have for, for leisure and enjoying that, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But then also finding a way to devote themselves to some form of, of work or a cause that is greater than themselves or service to others. We're made to work. And that brings me back to this big question. What does it mean to glorify God at work? And, and I would encourage you, think about that. Whether your work is paid employment, whether your work is in your household, whether your work is volunteer work, what does it look like to glorify God in your work? There are, of course, a number of ways that you can glorify God at work. You and I, we can glorify God in our work by being kind and honest in the workplace. We can glorify God by sharing our faith with our coworkers. We can glorify God by doing whatever it is that gives us greatest joy or greatest passion. We can glorify God by committing ourselves to, to work or causes that help others or further justice in the world. We can glorify God, maybe this one will seem a little weird to you, we can glorify God by making as much money as we possibly can and then being generous with it. Or we can glorify God by making enough money to live as quickly as possible so that we have more time to devote to other things. There, those are, these are all generally true statements, and if this was a longer series, we could even do a teaching on each one and find ample biblical support for all of these different ways to glorify God at work. But I want to talk today about one particular way that we can serve and glorify God in our work that I think we often overlook. And I think it's absolutely critical for us, if we as followers of Christ, if we're going to find fulfillment in our work, if we're going to love others well through our work, if we're going to glorify God in our work, I think this is absolutely critical, and I just don't think we talk about it enough. See, pastor and author Timothy Keller, who I read a bunch and who I quote a bunch because he is brilliant, has a wonderful book on the subject of faith and work called Every Good Endeavor. I would recommend it to you. And in that book, he says that one of the best ways you and I can love the world and serve God through our jobs is through what he calls the ministry of competence. The ministry of competence. See, often in church world, if you've been a church attender for, for, for any length of time, you're probably familiar with this word ministry. And we'll talk about preaching ministry or the, the prayer ministry or the, the worship or, or music ministry or the youth ministry or all these other things. And that's, those are all obviously very powerful forms of ministry. But I want to ask you, have you ever thought of your competent job performance as ministry? Now, we talk in church world all the time about, man, your, your job is a mission field, and you can go out and share Jesus in, in, in your workplace and all of that, and that's all true, like yes and amen to that. But that wasn't the question. I didn't ask, do you think your job is a mission field? I'm asking you, do you think of your work done competently as ministry? Because I want to make the case to you today that one of the best ways to serve God and glorify God at work is to do your job well. One of the best ways to serve God and glorify God at work is to do your job well. Through performing your job, whatever it is, with competence, you are actively participating in God's good work in the world. In fact, if you have the, the Bridgeway app or you want to open that up, this is the fill in the blank. It's very, very simple. The fill in the blank is this. God is glorified by good work. God is glorified by good work work. 
And, and, and I just want you to know, I mean, we talk all the time in church world about God moving in worship services, God moving here on the weekend, and, and that's all true, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But God can move in the same way through you at your job during the week as he can in my job here on the weekends. God can move just as powerfully through you at your job during the week. <laughs> so it takes me back to a question I asked after my story about Captain Cronin. What does it mean to be a Christian airline pilot? It means you land the heck out of that plane. Smoothly, right? It means you land the plane whether there's a hole ripped in it or not. See, during the moment of crisis on flight 811, and Tim Keller talks about this in his book, during the moment of crisis on flight 811, the best gift that Captain Cronin had to offer his passengers was his experience and his competence. That is the best gift he had to offer in that moment. I don't know what was going through all the passengers' minds back in the, back in the cabin. I guarantee you not a one was going, oh man, I sure hope this captain listens to Christian music in his workspace. I'm like, I listen to Christian music in my work's best. I'm not against that. Like, don't hear me saying that's bad. It's a good thing, right? What mattered most? Can he land the plane? Can he land the plane? And listen, in our working lives, we have innumerable opportunities to honor and serve God. Please do not hear me saying that competence is the only way to honor God in your work. But please do hear me saying that when you, regardless of your profession, do your job and do it well, you are not simply completing a task. You are participating actively and meaningfully in God's creative work in the world. See, we serve a loving and creative God, and he in his kindness and his grace invites us to join him in that creative work. So whether you are drawing blueprints or writing computer code or flipping a hamburger or running a counseling session, you are participating in that work. And, and we talk about competence, we talk, there's so many reasons why our competence in our jobs is so important. Because listen, you and I, we rely on the competence of others every day, don't we? I mean, I was thinking about this as I was getting the message ready. I'm sitting in my office at home writing and reading and researching and everything else. I'm thinking about all the different people who I'm relying on. I think about my chair that I sit in in my office, a pretty comfortable chair. It's lasted a long time. I've managed to keep it relatively clean, even though it's white a great chair. I think about my desk. I think about my computer, the, the people that designed it and put it together. I think about the programs I use. I think about the binding and the printing on my old study Bible that's held up so well, even though it's super old. I think about the ability to do research and all the different skills that I'm relying upon just to be able to put a message together, right? I'm relying on the competence of others. And so many of us, in ways big and small, we really care a lot about other people being good at their jobs, don't we? Like if you're in a medical emergency, you've got a health crisis, what is your greatest hope for your doctor? It is not that they keep a Christian trinket on their desk. I've got one on mine. Again, not against it. What's your greatest hope for your doctor? That they know what they're doing, right? When you drive over a bridge, what is your greatest hope for the people who are involved in inspecting the bridge and determining if it was capable of carrying vehicles? <laughs> that they're good at their job. 
When you think about those who write environmental regulations and try to keep our air breathable and water water drinkable, what, what is your greatest hope for them? That they're good at their jobs and that they know what they're doing. You and I, in a thousand ways, big and small, rely on competent people to help meet our needs and keep society moving. And, and here's what I want to understand. I think it is, it, is, it is so easy to lose sight of this, especially if you've been doing your job for a long time. When people come to you at work, when people use whatever service you provide, when people call you on the phone, when people do whatever, however you engage with the people that engage with your company, When people come to you, they have a need. They're probably not just calling to check in, right? They're coming to you with a need. And their greatest hope is that you would help them meet that need. I know that sounds so simple, but I think we forget about that sometimes. And it's through the ministry of competence. People are hoping that we'll be competent. It's through the ministry of competence, that practice of doing our jobs well, that we serve God and we serve the people right in front of us. I love, there's an author by the name of Dorothy Sayers, and and she said this writing after World War II. She just as easily could have said it last week. She said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. He says, that's, she says, that's our big message to carpenters, is don't be drunk and disorderly when you're not at work, and then show up on Sundays. And maybe you've been in environments where that's essentially been the message you've been given. Okay, uh, to be a Christian, be a good person, show up on Sundays, maybe serve a little, give some money, that's it. We don't really talk that much about your work life. But Sayers goes on, I love what she says. She says what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Is it the first demand? We could quibble with that a little bit. But I know this. I would want every carpenter in our church to know that when they make a good table, they're doing God's work. I would want every carpenter in our church to know that God can move just as powerfully through them as they're building a table on Tuesday as he can through any of us here on the weekends. I'd want every carpenter in our church to know if they have a heart for Jesus and for sharing Jesus, and I'd say this to all of you regardless of your profession. See, competence brings credibility, right? We respect competent people. See, if you've got a heart for evangelism, if you've got a heart to share Jesus in your workplace, I, I, would, I would go so far as to say the first step to doing that is doing your job well. Because you and I, we just naturally, we respect competent people. When we do our jobs to the best we know how, it brings glory to God. Maybe, maybe you've seen the old movie Chariots of Fire. There's a great line in that movie where Eric Liddell's father says to him, you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. <laughs> and if you can praise the Lord peeling a spud, you can certainly praise the Lord doing your job. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, it's a different context, But he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And again, that was written for a particular audience, for a particular context. But there's wisdom there for us. Whether you build or you sow, whether you instruct or you supervise, whether you trade or negotiate, whether you invest or write, whether you run errands or care for children, whether you make laws or fix cars, do all for the glory of God. 
That whatever your job is, when you do it well, you can do it for the glory of God. And I, and I want to show you another side of this. I want to show you another side of this. God, the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. James chapter 1 talks about this. But who does God use to deliver those gifts? I, I want to suggest to you that it is through our competence. God uses us to give his gifts to the world. There, there's this obscure passage in Psalm 147. You don't need to go there. But God is speaking to Israel. And listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. God strengthens the bars of your gates, Israel. He makes your gates strong so that it can protect them. How does God do that? Do you suppose he drops gates out of heaven? Here you go. No, he uses the people that build gates. God fills you with the finest wheat. How does he do that? Through the farmer, through the miller, through the baker, right? All of these people doing their quote-unquote ordinary jobs. And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm blessing the world through, through your work and your part of it. See, God is taking credit for these things, but he's accomplishing them through people. He's accomplishing them through people. God could do things on his own, but he chooses to involve us in his work, and that is a really beautiful thing. I was, I was thinking about this this week, how, you know, my family, when we sit down to have a meal, we'll sit down and, and we'll pray, like maybe you do as well in your, your household, and we'll thank God for the meal, and we receive the meal as a gift from God, recognizing it is his provision in our lives. But I just think about how many people are involved in getting that meal on my table <laughs> from the people that grew it. Or, not for me, I'm a vegetarian, but for the rest of my family, whoever killed it, whoever cut it and cleaned it, whoever brought it to the grocery store, all the different grocery store workers that are involved. I think about all the delivery drivers that got it to the different places. I think about whoever it is that inspects the gas lines in my house and my neighborhood to make sure the gas works so we can cook whatever we're eating. There's a lot of people that got involved in the process of putting food on my table and yours, right? Every single one of them is doing God's work. Every single one of them is doing God's work. So I just want to encourage you with that reality. Man, where do you fit on the supply chain of God delivering his blessings to the world? Because I guarantee you, you're on it. You're a part of that blessing. I just want to encourage you with that. No matter how, how menial or simple you believe your job is, it's a part of God delivering his blessing to the world. And I, and I, and I point that out just to say, I, I think that a lot of us, we could hear something like this and we could say, okay, yeah, that might be true, but like, you don't know. Like, my job, I, I don't think that's really true for me. It might be true for other people, and I got to tell you, it is true for you. It, it is true for you. And, and we just say, oh, well, I'm just, um, yeah, there is no just, Right? I remember when this really came home for me years ago. There's just this idea that your job, no matter how menial or unimportant it might seem to you, can be used to bring blessing to others. See, between college and seminary, I, I took a year off, and I just sort of worked a few different 
odd jobs. And, and, and I spent, for, for that year, I was, one of the jobs I had was I was working at this like specialty running shoe store in, in Los Angeles. And what would happen at the store is, is people would come in and we'd spend some time with them, we'd talk with them, we'd watch them walk, we'd analyze their feet and everything else and all this other stuff. And then we would make specific recommendations to them based upon just their, their arches and all these different elements of their feet. You know, we'd had a little bit of training and then, you know, there we go. And it was just amazing to me over the course of that year, the reactions I would get from people after spending 20 or 30 minutes with them helping them find shoes. People were so, I got so many handshakes and a few hugs. People were so thankful. And I'm sitting here going, you still got to run, man. Like, I just helped you pick out the shoes. It's no big deal, right? But here's what I realized. Here's Here's what I realized is that people would come into that store and I had knowledge and skills that they needed. That was, now, pretty simple knowledge and skills, if we're being honest. It was a little bit of training, okay, go sell shoes, right? I had knowledge and skills that that they needed. They did not have those knowledge and skills. And what I was able to do was I was able to take the knowledge and skills that I had and use them to bring blessing to somebody else. People were grateful and people left happy and people left feeling seen and cared for And all of that, right? And you can do the same thing. I want to ask you, what knowledge and skills do you have that you can use to bring blessing in your work or in whatever you're doing vocationally? I love what Pastor Lance said last week. He said that part of your blessing is your brain. And I think that for so many of us, we just take our skills and knowledge for granted. I didn't think twice about the fact that I knew quite a bit about running shoes, whatever. That's just my life. I didn't really think about it. But to someone who didn't have that knowledge, it was extraordinary. I want to ask you, what knowledge or skills or abilities or tools has God given you that you're just like, yeah, whatever, this is just my life, it's what I do, it's no big deal, and the rest of us are like, you can do what? Because I think you got them. I think you got them. And when you put those skills to work, you can become the means through which God is blessing the world. You've got skills that are normal to you, because you use them every day. But they're exceptional to people that don't have them. And see, what is that? What is that? The implications of this are huge. It means that every job has dignity. It means that we don't worship, as Christians, we do not worship our work. But we can do our work as an act of worship because we're doing it for God and for the blessing of the world. It means you can represent Christ in your workplace by coming in and doing your job well. I love, Pastor Lance, he said last week, he, he ended last week's message by saying that a loud Christian with a lousy work ethic is like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> and I couldn't agree more. I've worked with some in the, you know, in the past at other places, right? But a humble Christian who works hard, who serves others, who does their job to the best of their ability with a good attitude, that person will have the kind of credibility and impact that a loud Christian with a a lousy work ethic never could, right? When we commit ourselves to the ministry of competence, we take the gifts God has given us and we put them into practice, the world is blessed and we have credibility when we want to share about our Jesus. Now, real quick, I want to be careful about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should become workaholics in the name of mastering competence, Right? That we don't need to, oh, well, I need to be competent, so now I need to just burn the candle at both ends to be the absolute best I could ever be. If anything, what our faith teaches us about work and rest can be a witness to a workaholic culture, right? 
I'm not saying that we need to lament the limits to our competence. There will be people who are better at your job than you are, and that is okay. You do not need to feel bad about that. I preach on the same stage where Pastor Lance Hahn preaches. <laughs> Guess what? I'm not him. I can't preach the way that he can, and I'm okay with that. I praise God for the gifts he's given Pastor Lance. There's not an ounce of jealousy or envy in me. I admire his abilities, and I come up and give you the best of what I've got to try to be the best version of me, not to try to be him, right? You, you can do that in your own job. And listen, you can celebrate the people that are better at your job than you. Because listen, come on, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if your identity is in him, if you're, if you're there to be a blessing, listen, come on, you don't have to prove anything. You, you don't need to go to your work with something to prove. You can just be there to be a blessing. So it's okay if someone's better than you. You do the best that you can within your limits, right? I'm similarly not saying we make work an idol where we always prioritize workplace concerns over our families or, other, or over other important elements of our lives. And then as I, I kind of mentioned a moment ago, I'm, I'm not saying we make our job a place where we find our identity. If anything, man, what a blessing it is to be released from that burden that so many in our world live with of relying on their work to give them an identity, of relying on work to, to again, be, have, it, have it be a place where you just feel like you constantly have to prove yourself, right? I, I've talked about this in different men's environments, this idea that, oh, well, if I, just, if I just prove myself at work, then some, like, magic contentment will come over me. I say, listen, that's a carrot that keeps moving, right? What you and I instead, we can come into work saying, my identity is secure, I know who I am in Christ, and I'm here to be a blessing. And we can do our work in a manner that when we're on the job, our coworkers are glad to see us. We can do our work in such a manner that when our customers and clients engage with us, they leave having had a positive experience and having had their needs met to the best of our ability. It means we can do our jobs in such a way that we know at our heart of hearts at the end of the day that we can say we've done the best we can with what we've got. We've done, as Ephesians 6, 7 says, we've rendered service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That we've said, God, I've given you my best today, right? Now, in the few minutes we have left, I just want to look at one other concept we can take into our workplaces that can help us connect our faith and our work. And it's right there in the Ephesians passage. The text says to work for your bosses as you would work for Christ. And it goes on to say to do your work as a servant of Christ. In, in a similar passage in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Both of those passages contain some really good news for us. I don't know what your earthly boss is, boss is like. Excuse me. I don't know what your earthly boss is like. Maybe they're wonderful, maybe they're not wonderful. But what the New Testament shows us is that if you're a Christian, you actually have the best boss ever. Because if you're a Christian, your boss is Jesus. If you're a Christian, your boss is Jesus. Now, I've had many different jobs over the years. I've worked for many different bosses. Some of them were awesome and inspired me to be the best that I could be and inspired me to want to work hard. I wanted to serve them. Man, I felt we were on the same team. We're in it together and all that other stuff. I've worked with other bosses who were the opposite of that, I'm sure you can relate. But the scriptures teach us that our ultimate boss is Jesus. Now, you're, don't, don't misunderstand me. You're responsible and accountable to your earthly bosses. 
in the same manner that I'm responsible and accountable to Pastor Lance and our elder board. But your ultimate boss is Jesus. We're called to be people who honor and respect authority, and the Ephesians passage shows us that. But we're ultimately called, don't don't miss this, we're ultimately called to base the effort and love we put into our work not on our desire to work for our earthly boss, which can be fickle, right? We're called to base the love and effort we put put into our work on our desire to serve our eternal heavenly boss, right? That that is meant to be what inspires our our effort. And working for Jesus has a number of benefits. We could do a whole teaching on the benefits of working for Jesus, but I just want to talk about one. And I hope that you'll find it helpful, especially if, and I don't know your situation, I don't know your job or where you volunteer or what your life circumstance is. But I hope that you find this encouraging, especially if maybe you have a hard time connecting your faith and your work, and I know a lot of people do. See, we've been talking about competence a lot, and here's what I know. If you work for Jesus you have a supremely competent boss. Whatever profession you're in, if you work for Jesus, you have a supremely competent boss. In his classic book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard says this, I love these words, Jesus lived in a way that showed his cognitive and practical mastery over every phase of reality, physical, moral, and spiritual. I love this next little phrase, it's cute. He is master only because he is maestro. He is not just nice, he is brilliant. Have you thought about Jesus as brilliant? Willard goes on, he is the smartest man who ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. Jesus is not just nice, he's brilliant. Let me ask you something, who knows the most about real estate in the history of the world? It's not Phil Dunphy, it's Jesus Christ. Who is the greatest animal board and care supervisor? Who is the greatest commercial electrician? Who is the greatest third grade teacher? Who is the greatest train conductor? That would be Jesus, 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 and Jesus. Who would make the world's greatest Chick-fil-A manager? (laughs) Jesus, and it would be his pleasure to serve you. Right. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. Your earthly boss might be a bumbling fool, I don't know. Your heavenly boss is not. He knows your industry inside and out. He is brilliant. He delights in you and he wants what is best for you. He is aware of your limitations. In his eyes, you have nothing to prove. He is an expert in your field. Just think about that for a second. Whatever field you're in, Jesus is an expert in it. He is an expert in your field. And he invites you to rely on him in the day-to-day sort of ups and downs of work and in the moments of crisis. Your work matters a lot to him. It's not just something you do to earn a paycheck. It's a way that you partner with the greatest boss in the history of the world to bring blessing. What an opportunity we've been given. And if your earthly boss isn't great, Maybe there's an opportunity here to shift your mindset a little bit. Maybe there's an opportunity here to say, okay, Jesus, I've 
I've been just getting by at work because I work in an organization where stuff's messed up or a supervisor who doesn't know what they're doing or whatever the case may be. I've just been doing enough to get by. But Jesus, you gave everything for me and you're my new boss. So it's my joy to give my best to you, to honor and serve you. I'm not into people pleasing. I'm into serving you with my work. I want my work to be an act of worship to you. Maybe that little shift can be an absolute game changer for you. Last thing and then we're done. I think it's fair to say that most of us in our working lives are not going to face situations like the one that Captain Cronin faced on that airplane. Or at least let's hope not. Situations where everything's falling apart and we have to act quickly or lots of people are going to die, right? Let's hope we don't face those situations. But here's what we will face every single day. We'll face a choice. And again, this applies to your job, this applies to where you volunteer, this applies to your household, wherever it is that you serve others or do something beyond yourself. We face a choice every single day. We can approach what we do as just a job. Just something we do to pay the bills, something we do to fund the rest of our lives. Or we can partner with the best boss ever. We can say, Jesus, I want to do the best I can with what I've got. Jesus, I want to engage my heart and my mind and my hands and everything in the ministry of competence to partner with you to meet needs and bring blessing to the world. And what we'll find is we have opportunities to meet needs big and small. And that will infuse our work with purpose and meaning. And it'll bring glory to God. Why? Because God is glorified by good work. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that that is true. We thank you that you are indeed glorified when we go to work and do our jobs well. So so I pray for each one of us, whatever our work or volunteer work or work at home might be, Father, I pray that we would be men and women who from a place of knowing who we are in you, from a place of a secure identity, that we would seek to do our jobs as competently as we can. I pray that you would infuse us with just a fresh sense of meaning and purpose this weekend, that we would see your purposes for us in our work. We would see our work as an opportunity to partner with you to, to bless the world. And Father, we started today by praying against discouragement. And I just, so many of us are discouraged in our jobs right now as we're working at home and staring at screens and having to scramble and make so many different adjustments. Father, would you fill us with encouragement? Would you help us to see your purposes even in the disruption that we might bring competence to those spaces? God, I pray that we would, people would leave interactions with us having been blessed. I pray people would leave interactions with us having had their needs met and their days brightened. And Father, I do pray that through our competence, through our willingness to do our jobs well, through our willingness to be kind and do things the right way and to love others, that you would indeed open doors for us to be able to share about you and that you would ultimately receive glory from our work in the ways that others are blessed and in the ways that others come to see and know you through our work. So we ask these things in the powerful, strong name of the greatest boss ever, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen.